This is 3RRRFM's Uncommon Sense podcast with Amy Mullins. On today's show, we chatted with Ben Altham from New Matilda about federal politics and the upcoming federal budget. Then we chatted with Dame Fiona Reynolds. Fiona Reynolds was the Director General of the National Trust in the UK for 11 years, and she's written a book called The Fight for Beauty, Our Path to a Better Future. We chatted also with Dr. Maurice Elbert, who is a political scientist at the University of Melbourne, and she discussed the French presidential election results and what's next for President-elect Emmanuel Macron. Finally, we spoke with Matthew Lutton, Artistic Director and Co-CEO of the Malthouse Theatre, as well as actor Naomi Rukovina. They're both involved in the latest production at the Malthouse called Away, a classic play by Michael Gow. In the studio with me, Ben Altham. Thanks for joining me. It's nice to be special, isn't it? Isn't it? Everyone's special. I think everyone's special. That's what I say. I mean, everyone is special and uh, and I love you all equally. Um, Now, Ben... Tonight, the federal budget is being delivered by our treasurer, ScoMo, and uh, and we've already heard some of the announcements um, and some of the key, I guess, policies that will be delivered tonight in the budget. And people may be slightly confused as to why we have new policies in a budget. Shouldn't we already know what the platform, the policy platform is for um, education funding, for example? But uh, we have seen a change in that in terms of policy uh, with the announcement of Gonski 2.0. Now, um, we saw this announcement from Simon Birmingham um, only a few days ago and we've seen a lot of back and forth in terms of what it means for schools and whether they're worse off at all. Um, so, Ben, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and uh, in terms of Gonski funding, what what do you think about these new arrangements and um, and how, how different are they from Labor's initial uh, policy, which the Coalition actually committed themselves to, at least for the, the full round? Yeah, well, let's go back. Let's do a little bit of history here quickly. So uh, in the Rudd-Gillard government, way back in 2008, the government commissioned a merchant banker, a very rich guy from Sydney by the name of David Gonski, to review Australia's school funding system. And after many months and months of submissions and a lot of number crunching, they came back with a report which was known as the Gonski Report and the Gonski Report provided a roadmap for how to even up Australia's very, very disorganised and unequal schools funding system. Now, what the Gonski Report said back in the day in 2010 when it came down, I think it was, either 2010 or 2011, um, it said that Australia's top schools were performing very well but there was a huge gap between our top schools and our bottom schools and that if we wanted to improve our performance nationally in schools education, what we had to do was invest in those schools that weren't doing so well. And that's particularly in regional areas, in the Northern Territory, in regional Tasmania and in the very poorer parts of the big cities that's where the schools were doing poorly and the students were doing poorly. So Gonski recommended that basically every school would get a schooling resource standard, which was just a sort of, you know, a thing they made up for, basically a basic amount of money that every student should get. And then there should be a top-up based on need. And that would go to schools depending on how well or poorly they were performing. So there would be basically a funding directed towards need. Now, why that was revolutionary was because 
because uh, previously to this, it had never been like that. Basically, Australia had uh, 27 different funding systems for schools. So there were eight states and territories. um, And then within those states and territories, there were then Catholic systems, independent schools and the public system. So it was a very, very fragmented way of funding schools. Now, the... Gillard government did fund Gonski, but it didn't fund it in the full amount that David Gonski recommended. So that was the first big compromise right there. The second thing was, of course, that the coalition, when they got in in 2013, they didn't spend all the money that Labor said had promised, basically. So Labor had promised Gonski funding for six years. Uh, and when the coalition got in, they, they pretty much abandoned the, the final two years of that funding that Labor had promised, which was less than what David Gonski had recommended. So fast forward to 2017, Education Minister Simon Birmingham has announced that the government is recommitting to the Gonski process. And I think that is significant. So the government is going back to the idea that we should fund schools on the basis of need, not on the basis of the way we've always done it historically. And the government has announced new funding that will try and meet this. And it's also got David Gonski himself back involved in the process. Now, Labor says that it's still a funding cut, and they're right. There was about $30 billion that the coalition said that they were going to save from schools funding in the horror 2014 budget. They've put about $8 billion back in, but Labor says it's still roughly a $22 billion funding cut from 2013 levels. Because, I mean, one of the things that uh, was a key feature in Labor's policy apparently was that it, it would see funding increases year on year for schools. So, I mean, are there going to be ongoing increases or are we just going to see this baseline and then the disadvantage, I guess, top up that that is currently proposed? There will be funding increases, but I think the problem is, you know, uh, how much is the increase? So, I know that when the Gonski money was flowing to some of the more disadvantaged schools, uh, it was making a big difference. My mum was a school principal up in Queensland in a fairly disadvantaged area of Ipswich. Uh, She said the Gonski money made a huge difference. They could hire extra staff. They could invest in, you know, students with learning disabilities. They could cover areas of the school which they'd never been able to cover before, like languages and music and things like that. So Gonski made a huge difference when that money flowed. So the fact that the government's not going to be committing as much of that funding has previously promised, I think, will be a problem. Now, where I think the the government's reforms are welcome is that they're finally addressing one of the most pernicious aspects of Labor's policy, which was its kind of no school will get less money thing. So Labor had a policy. They forced it on David Gonski, which basically said, you can't redistribute the funding. You've got to make sure that every school gets at least what it's getting right now. Now, the problem with that was that some schools were getting grossly over what they really should have been getting, even on the existing formulas. It was just a quirk of history and, you know, a fact of pork barrelling by previous politicians. So uh, Simon Birmingham has said, yeah, like some schools, particularly in the Catholic system will get less under this new arrangement and I think most of us agree that there's probably scope for some of those very elite schools uh, to get a little bit less federal public money. 
definitely. Well, I mean, he's playing the fairness line a lot and this budget apparently will be about fairness. Um, And certainly it's very hard in Australian culture to argue with the fair go and fairness and um, egalitarianism. And when you're framing it in this way, it makes it easy to agree with. I certainly think that it should be fair and there should be that, I guess, level of distribution that is, um, you know, even. But... I mean, it, you're going to see a lot of lobbying coming from these private schools and, and Catholic schools, and we already have seen that. Do you think that they're going to budget all on this? Because apparently the minister has left things a little bit unclear as to whether there's room for negotiation. Well, the Catholic schools lobby is a juggernaut, and if, if they start to ramp up, I'd say it could be quite uncomfortable for the government. Um, and we've already seen that Labor's come on sort of to support the Catholic schools. Look, there's no doubt that some of the Catholic schools will get less money and so they've got, you know, legitimate grievances there, but they're pretty well funded already, let's let's face it, some of the top schools. Um, and the whole point of this system is in the end redistribution because the point is the poorer schools are the schools that need more resourcing uh, and that's the, that's the whole thrust of Gonski is to even up the educational system so that all kids kids have an equal chance of doing the best they can. Um, but I think you're right to say that the government is p- pivoting towards egalitarianism. You know, I think they've learnt their lesson from 2014, finally. Um, and they're now under Scott Morrison making a concerted effort to try and do things like fund the National Disability Scheme in full. They're trying to find money to plough into certain aspects of welfare, while at the same time, obviously, still cracking down on welfare recipients and cutting money out of universities. So it's a balancing act, if you like. It's a juggle for Scott Morrison. But you can see that they're trying to take some of Labor's policies, particularly some of Labor's kind of more egalitarian or welfare-friendly policies, trying to take some of the the wind out of Labor's sails. Definitely. I mean, it's politically uh, pragmatic, to say the least, um, that they've finally come about to this idea that government is there to deliver (coughs) services as well as to deliver tax cuts, although some may dispute whether that's what government is also for. Um, But... I mean, doesn't it make it difficult for them in terms of the messaging? Because we spoke about the tertiary education changes last week and these are deeply unpopular. Um, there was a, and a poll just came out uh, overnight that said 60% of voters disapprove of the changes to tertiary education because they're fearful about student fees increasing, um, that they'll have to pay them back a lot earlier and that's going to put pressure on um, vulnerable people and people who are just entering the job market. I mean, how do they balance this messaging of, on the one hand, fairness and egalitarianism and on the other, well, some people lose? Well, good question, you know, and, and how it plays out remains to be seen. And we'll, I guess we'll, we'll know more when we see the full budget document tonight at 7.30. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, the policies that they've leaked out early are likely to be the more unpopular ones for obvious reasons. And I, I do think the universities issue won't go away. Uh, just simply for the fact that so many people go to university, you know, more than half of school leavers go on to university now and the uh, the onus is going to be on them increasingly to, to fund their own education and that's very different to the generation before them and certainly to the generation of politicians now in charge. They paid very little fees or no fees at all for their higher education. Um, and as we talked about last week, you know, the repayment threshold to 
has been lowered now to $42,000, which is below the median wage. So you're actually asking people who are in the poorer half of the workforce to start paying back their education costs. And that's, I think, really significant. And that means that we're really actually asking people who are doing it reasonably tough. You know, we're talking about lower middle class here, really, or even working class people um, to be paying a big new extra tax, which is what hex fees represent. And we're also um, putting pressure on their parents should they live with their parents. Um, and I'm sure that that's part of the the voting um, populace's disagreement or disapproval of this policy is that not only does it affect young people, but it affects families who would hope that their children are able to become independent and, and have their own lives, um, you know, separately from them at some point in their 20s. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it really is just an, another hit on younger Australians. Uh, there's no way to, to, to look at it other than that, I think. And again, that's the government's political calculus, I think. They've decided that um, where they need to shore up their, their bases in pensioners and older Australians and the people they can afford to annoy are younger Australians because mm. they probably think they don't vote for them anyway. Well, you know, if we're looking at that as well, um, we're looking at children and parents in terms of um, Gonski, certainly, you know, working families or families. Um, and then we're, when we're looking at university, we're looking at single, usually single younger people who, um, you know, aren't usually catered for in any budget. <laughs> and even the older people who, you know, uh, are not in a family or have children feel that they're often left out. So it does seem very clear where their priorities lie in terms of um, shoring up that voter base and taking those that they can take away from from labour through things like education. But it will be interesting to keep an eye on health as well because, as we know, in the, the last election, Medicare and health was a, a huge um, winning point for labour. So do you think there'll be anything in the budget around health that might be uh, interesting, Ben? Yeah, there probably will be just because health is such a huge portfolio and there's a lot of things that can go wrong in health. Uh, there's been a lot of cuts to health since 2014, not many of which have been reversed. So unlike education, the, the health cuts did get through a lot of them. Uh, and so, you know, there's been significant cuts to public health in particular. Uh, and, you know, wh how that plays out, um, you know, I think I think we're seeing how that's playing out in many aspects, which has been a big squeeze on public health budgets and on investment in public and preventative health, and that's going to have big implications down the track. So, yeah, I think the health budget will be watched very closely. Part of the problem with the health budget is it's quite complex and you sort of need to be a health policy expert like Stephen Duckett to really understand it. Uh, but we'll rely on those experts to tell us what the health budget really means. Uh, unless the government is investing lots of extra money into health, then you can basically assume that the cuts from earlier years are still baked in. Absolutely. And it came up in the uh, the state federal, not state federal, the state budget, the Victorian state budget as well. Um, when I went to a briefing on that, mental health is still a huge issue in terms of the lack of funding and the previous cuts that they've seen, um, both at the state and federal level to mental health funding. And in particular, as you say, preventative funding and um, early frontline funding. And really, people put the money into hospital beds and crisis. So it's when you get to a point of, of severe 
mental ill health that that's when the funding is there. But, uh, you know, there's a huge spectrum in terms of um, people's mental illness or mental ill health experiences. And certainly we need to have a whole range of of points of contact for, for patients and people too, don't we, Ben? Oh, yeah. If you look at the where we spend our health dollars, it's not particularly rational. You know, uh, the, the disease burden, if you like, the, the, the parts of the spectrum where people are the sickest are, are often where we don't actually spend the money. So I think mental health is thought to be like 15% of the disease burden, but we spend much less than 15%, like half of that on mental health funding. And, you know, there's things like dementia. Dementia is now the second biggest killer in Australia. Uh, the, so bigger than cancer, dementia, and yet we spend a tiny amount on dementia compared to cancer. So things like that, you know, um, look, we don't have a cure for dementia, obviously, so it's, it's, it's hard. But, yeah, there's a whole bunch of priorities, and I think we've gone backwards under the coalition government manifestly in addressing those big population health issues. Yeah, and, Ben, I'd just like to um, cap off our discussion with... Um, a bit of a mention and a discussion on Fairfax and the strike that's currently occurring um, because we saw that uh, that The Age, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Australian Financial Review, um, well, voted to go on strike for a week, which is a pretty significant strike, um, you know, and historically significant. And uh, what, what kind of level of these cuts are proposed, Ben, and what do you think is going to happen? Because the strike is going to end very soon. But that said, the journalists who are in Fairfax, um, you know, won't be covering the federal budget. We've got a very small staff that are there today. And if you look in the first three pages, I literally know them personally because there's uh, an AAP journalist and two uh, journalists from the Business Day section, uh, the editor and one of the senior editors, because they're the, they're man the fort so to speak what what are the implications for media more more broadly but also for Fairfax and staff well firstly for Fairfax I guess we're seeing the the end game really now I think this is the final destruction of a great Australian media institution this is it I think this is this is the end of Fairfax uh, you see that the company has is in play as they say now there's been a private equity bid for Fairfax. Uh, that's a bunch of merchant bankers who want to get their hands on the domain website and then probably sell everything else mm. off, I would have thought, um, sell it all off. And, and they're in discussions at the moment. Uh-huh. They're absolutely in discussions with uh, Greg Highwood, the mm. $4 million a year CEO. Um, and, of course, uh, these these uh, sackings, these redundancies, they're going ahead no matter what. So Fairfax is, again, losing another quarter of its journalists and... You know, like, it's pretty obvious now that the market, the free market as we know it, cannot support quality journalism. It's just as simple as that. And the demise of Fairfax just makes that abundantly clear. So as a country, as a society, we're going to have to come up with other ways to support journalism for its democratic goods. You know, for the, the fact that we can we can use journalism to hold governments and big powerful people to account. And, you know, I think we're, we're entering a golden age of corruption. I really do. You know, without things like Fairfax, without a muscular independent media to tell us what's going on, we're going to see all sorts of crime and malfeasance and wrongdoing. And, Ben, I mean, what 
could be the solution because we look at things like um, the arts, which we know have in, an inherent value, which you really can't put a dollar figure on. And journalism has a similarly important inherent value in terms of justice and democracy and uh, transparency and the like. What um, what could we do? What I mean, putting you on the spot here, I don't want you to solve the whole problem, but I mean, should we move away from the idea that it should be funded in the same way that any other organisation, um, you know, a business should fund itself, which is, you know, through revenue, um, or should we be looking at something else? Yeah, I think we need to completely disabuse ourselves of the idea that the free market will fund quality journalism. And uh, Jeff Sparrow had a really good article in the in the Guardian this week about exactly that point. I'm sure Jeff agrees with me. Uh, I think the first step would be much more funding to the ABC. You know, that's the obvious first step the government could take. Um, one thing that I'm very keen on is for the government to address the Facebook and Google duopoly. Facebook and Google now dominate Australia's mediascape online um, and in, in terms of advertising. They are literally a duopoly. So even on ter- in terms of competition law, you know, there's a big scope, I think, for the government to step in and say, you need, we need to do something about this. Now, I'd like to see a big tax levied on those giant profitable companies um, and the proceeds used to fund journalism, whether it be at the startup level or where, whether it be even just as we fund in the arts, fund small companies just to do journalism. You know, why can't we have a sector of government funded, partially government funded, partially subscription funded, you know, just as we do with opera companies and orchestras and theatre companies, what's wrong with funding a bunch of small independent news companies to do news, to do journalism, to do investigations? Mm. Um, And it could be financed, I believe, by taxing Google and Facebook. Well, that is a very innovative suggestion, Ben. <laughs> of course, it will never happen, but, you know. <laughs> think big, think big. Yeah. Um, and, and the problem is, of course, we can't even get these guys to pay income tax. We can't get them to pay company tax, which is the current law of the land because of their complex tax shifting arrangements where they ship all their money off to Ireland and then the Bahamas and then who knows where. Mm. And this sort of just demonstrates that the nation state is now incredibly weak when it comes to dealing with these global information behemoths, you know, who's got the power? It's probably not Canberra. No. It's probably Mountain View. The power or the willpower to do it well, as well. Well, the will is even a different issue. I don't think there's any will. No. No. But but whether there's even the sort of ability, the means to do mm. this. I think a more muscular nation state could certainly make things pretty difficult for Google. I mean, there's no reason why the government couldn't come in and say, hello, Google, uh, we're just going to put a, a levy on you now. We're going to call it a local content levy. We used to have local content rules in this country for television. Um, we still do, in fact, believe it or not, um, despite the fact that we've deregulated pretty much all the rest of our media laws. That happened last week, by the way. Mm. Um, not very well reported on. No, uh, and it was quite confusing as well as to what was really changing. Ben, do you just want to mention that while <coughs> we're here? 
Yeah, well, it's it's the widespread deregulation is what it's been announced by Mitch Fifield, the communications minister. Uh, The big ticket items, the government has got rid of licence fees for television networks. So they used to have to pay a licence fee to the government simply for broadcasting. And it was quite substantial, wasn't it? Yeah, it was about $130 million. And going back a few years, it was bigger again. Um, It's also got rid of the media ownership laws. So there's no more laws that say there should be diversity in a particular market, uh, which means the Lachlan or James Murdoch could now take over 10 and merge it with News Corporation and create a kind of newspaper Channel 10 uh, nexus and we expect that to happen. Mm. Uh, So media concentration, already the worst in the Western world, is going to get even more concentrated. Um, They've watered down children's content, for example. I mean, you know, who would have thought that even anyone would want to do that? But, yeah, Mm. the government has got rid of rules saying there should be a certain amount of children's content on television. Amazing. And and yet it's really largely gone unnoticed. It's gone largely unreported on except in the financial media, which has noted that the stock prices of all the television companies <laughs> have gone up. Of course. For obvious reasons. And government revenue down for clear reasons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which we really can't afford given our budget deficit. Well, that's a, that's a good point, Amy. So, yeah, the budget will be in deficit tonight. We'll find out exactly how much. But it's an interesting thing to think about how much hysteria there was three, four, five years ago when Labor was in, was in government mm, about... A budget emergency. Budget then. emergency. The deficit was terrible. The sky was falling in. Of course, since taking government, the coalition has delivered just as big or even bigger deficits than Labor did. Mm. Um, And so you'd have to say this is a tax and spend coalition government. You know, they have been quite poor at reigning in the deficit. And one of the reasons for that is they've gone on spending sprees in various areas, particularly in defence. Yeah, yeah. Of course, that's very popular, isn't it? Um, We'll keep an eye on this, Ben. And I know that uh, we're loaning you to the breakfasters tomorrow morning. So that uh, our listeners can get the first uh, fresh off the press <laughs> slash airwaves of what went down tonight um, for the, the federal budget. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll call in tomorrow morning, I think, about 8.15 <laughs> and um, give you a few thoughts. That I'll, should be good. I've got the calculator out tonight and we'll see what we can you'll add be, You'll be crunching the numbers, yep, reading yep. through the hundreds of pages and finding those tiny little things that people miss. Budget paper two is always the fun one to look at, you know, when that goes through the complete revenue and uh, expense measures. So you can see exactly where they're saving money, exactly where they're levying the new taxes. Well, you heard it here. You can check it out and it will be on the government website. So um, do your own citizen journalism as well as uh, listening to trusted sources. Absolutely. Budget.gov.au. Uh, Thank you so much, Ben, for joining us as usual. It's wonderful to have you in and have a lovely week. Thanks, Amy. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. I'm absolutely delighted to have with me now, all the way from Britain, Dame Fiona Reynolds, who is Master of Emmanuel College in Cambridge. And uh, she also was the Director General of the National Trust from 2001 till 2012. And the National Trust is a, a UK institution, which I'm sure we will get to in this interview. So thank you, uh, Dame Fiona Reynolds. Um, for joining us and I'm sure that the rest of your um, very impressive biography will come up in our discussion so I'll leave it till later. Thank you, lovely to be with you. 
first of all, you've written um, this book, which is called The Fight for Beauty, Our Path to a Better Future. Now, this conception of beauty is different from the typical philosophical and artistic discussions of beauty that that we're traditionally used to when it comes to intellectual debates and discussions. And I'm really interested to hear about what your conception of beauty is. And could you share with us um, how you conceive of beauty and what kind of beauty are we fighting for? Well, I'm drawing on a long tradition, perhaps a particularly British tradition, of beauty, of landscape, of nature, of cultural heritage, which is what creates... Uh, in this country, a kind of passion for uh, the landscapes that have been shaped over many centuries by human activity, that the movement for beauty was really begun in the Lake District, and the person who many of us treat as the sort of parent, the father of this movement, is William Wordsworth, who wrote so beautifully about um, the natural uh, and man-made landscape of particularly the Lake District, but many parts of the UK, but I think, you know, even as he was writing about how beautiful the landscape was um, back in the very early 19th century, uh, he published a, a guide to the lakes in 1810. He was also writing about how the beauty of the lakes was being damaged by suburban villas, by new tree planting and by the extraction of, of iron and other ores. So he was almost the person who's uh, tipped us from admiration of the beauty of landscape to the need to defend it. And I think it is that mix of admiration of beauty, but a sort of call to arms to protect it and defend it and to recognize how much it matters to us, that really that was the birth of the conservation movement in the UK. Well, it's really interesting um, that we know William Wordsworth as a poet more than uh, we know him as a conservationist, or at least in Australia, that's the case. And one of the the quotes that you um, reference in your book from Wordsworth was that he said that landscape was, quote, a sort of national property in which every man has a right and interest who has an eye to perceive and a heart to enjoy. This kind of idea that it's a right of all people to be able to appreciate and almost in some regards own or have open access to this landscape. How did that come about? Well, it, it's something that's evolved through time, and there have been many examples. I mean, people like John Muir, you know, who, who is Scott, who went off to the um, North American um, lands and himself was the founder of the National Parks Movement back in, in the 1860s. He similarly had a strong sense that these places were a sort of national property and that there should be rights of access and rights of enjoyment. This was a, a kind of democratic right, if you like. Um, another great uh, leader of that afterwards was, was, was Octavia Hill, who was this incredible campaigner, an acolyte of John Ruskin's, who was passionately believed that everybody has a right to beauty and need for beauty, not just a, a roof over our heads and enough to eat, but places of beauty, experiences that inspire us. And this was very prevalent through the kind of 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, and gave rise to the movement which led to the establishment of national parks, which are very much about access as well as about protection, and of people's connection with nature having not just a kind of value in experiential terms, but almost a spiritual value, something that the human spirit needs and depends on. And whether you look at the National Trust or the National Parks Movement or many conservation examples throughout the world, I think those threads 
of people's connection with nature as being a, a really meaningful and powerful source of inspiration come through. You mentioned there Octavia Hill. She was a co-founder of the National Trust and she really tied together social justice and beauty and the need for everyone to be able to appreciate landscape wherever they lived. As you reference, um, you know, when she herself lived in the city, she would take children out far enough for them to be able to appreciate green space and fresh air and blue skies. In terms of the development of Britain from a a largely rural um, place and, and then developing in the industrial era of the the 19th century with that transformation that occurred what were some of the things that Britain needed to do to actually fight for beauty because you mentioned that before 1909 there was really no planning act uh, that set out uh, what people could do with the land that they bought and any restrictions upon that. Exactly. And in fact, the particular circumstance of Britain, which is we're a small island with um, a growing population and back in the 19th century, escalating growing population. And the one thing that the movement for beauty perhaps did more than anything else was to embody the need for proper land use planning to control where new development takes place to contain cities and stop urban sprawl which was a terrible phenomenon of the interwar period of the 20s and 30s here 1920s and 30s and actually to protect the places we love while also making good provision for the necessary development whether that's housing or roads or schools or you know whatever and I think the tradition of land use planning in this country is something you know we're very proud of and the green belt uh, around our cities is something that other countries look at us with admiration for having achieved because many parts of the world particularly I'm thinking of North America but you know fail to contain urban sprawling just get mile after mile after mile of soulless development in areas that you know were beautiful countryside in the past so planning was perhaps the most um, important uh, articulation of, of how beauty should be reflected but i one of the criticisms i make in my book is we've kind of lost the clarity of those arguments and today we talk about planning as a break on development a sort of holding back the economy we fail to remember the vital public interests that it has protected and how deprived we would be if we didn't have green belts, we didn't have the beautiful countryside that has been protected by planning. So I'm trying to revive the fight for beauty in in, in a sense, talk about those reasons for protecting it and not just reduce ourselves to a you know an economistic argument about everything. Well, yes, we see um, this economistic argument in almost every public policy debate that we have. We're talking about, well, if we want to do something, it has to be efficient and it has to get the most bang for your buck. You need to be putting the monetary value above those other more intangible values. And I guess landscape is much harder to measure in terms of its value because there's just so many aspects. And and although um, economists may attempt to measure the value in order to protect nature, does that almost undermine nature by um, equating it with a monetary value? 
Well, we've had so many examples over the years where people have said, you know, there's got to be a business case for a conservation project. We've got to be able to identify the tangible benefits of of protecting nature in monetary terms. And I mean, there is a place for that. I'm not completely hostile to it because actually there are real benefits that it is worth capturing that protecting landscape and nature brings. But inevitably, it's a very partial view and to me completely fails to reflect the uh, enormous sense of spiritual uplift that we get from looking from at a beautiful piece of scenery or knowing that we've protected um, some species of butterfly that uh, would otherwise have become extinct. And that I, I want to ensure that we capture those non-material arguments as part of the debate because it's, in a way, too easy for economism to trump any argument about the value of nature because it has very powerful short-term imperatives, whereas many of the values of conservation are are long-term and and way into the future and about the rights of future generations and and very, very hard to make tangible. So I would say don't try and make them tangible. Recognize there is a real value of of a non-material kind and give that more weight in our thinking. My query around this is now that we have become quite reductive in our discussions around whether something is of benefit or not, how did England manage to prioritise beauty explicitly in its legislation and its policies? What exactly was the the magic formula, if you will? Was it cultural capital? Was it the people who were putting their intellectual and artistic weight behind uh, the landscape of England or is there something else? Well, I think it's the really, to me, very powerfully that moment in, in our history, uh, the post-war reconstruction moment, where as a country we'd lived through two appalling wars that had been enormous uh, devastation in terms of, you know, loss of life and, 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 and economic and other social problems of an enormous kind, and a completely... Um, cross-party alliance in the later stages of the Second World War decided that actually there needed to be a lot of fresh thinking and a new start for the UK. And what was very powerful to me was that that new start completely absorbed the idea about beauty and about the protection of the the non-material things in life. So that was a sort of recognition that, of course, we needed to build roads and houses and improve people's material well-being after the war. Um, But it was also a time when the National Health Service was introduced, education rights were expanded to encompass everybody up to the age of, of 14, but also... National parks were established, the first nature protection legislation was established, the recognition of our cultural heritage and buildings protection was recognised. So it was a package, and they talked a lot about the harmonisation of uses of land and of aspirations for the human spirit. And so it really felt to me as though that moment, beauty was fair and square at the heart of the agenda. And frankly, it's never been back there. It was was an exceptional moment, and one perhaps born of the troubled experience of the wars but nevertheless that is the kind of harmonization integrating message that i think we need today because we're facing all kinds of problems with the future of the world you know with sustainability or climate change we need again to to remember that uh, wider recognition of, of what our human needs are not just short term but but long term and not just material but non-material too 
the the way that that was framed and that debate and and the bipartisanship that existed did that really engage in the language of beauty and the holistic picture that you paint in your book was that something that occurred at that point Yes. I mean, if you read the things that were being written then, there was a a really strong sense of the power of beauty and how it needed to shape public policy. I mean, the legislation specifically included the words beauty um, in in them. It's never happened since. Um, In 50 years, that's the last time that the National Parks and Access to the Countryside Act was the last time beauty was legislated for. And ministers talked um, in very powerful language about the spiritual value of open access to the hills and the moors and that being as important as anything they were doing to establish a national health service you know uh, build a hospital yes but actually give people access to the to the hills and the moors and that would also improve their health and well-being and their spiritual well-being so beauty was really encompassed in that language and in that set of policies in a way, really, that it never has been since. And almost today, beauty is a word that politicians feel embarrassed to utter. They kind of feel awkward about it. And instead, we've reduced our discussion about these things to very um, almost sort of materialistic words. Instead of talking about beauty, we talk about ecosystem services, you know, this sort of formal policy wonk language. And and it just removes that sense of direct connection with nature and its value from our, our language and our dialogue. It barely is mentioned beauty in in our politics and certainly that would be the same in Australia in the context of landscape and other constructs. But you point out in your book that uh, Oliver Letwin in 2005 gave one of the very few political speeches about beauty and um, he called for a change in political language, which is really what you're calling for as well, among many other things. And uh, he said, quote, the language of politics needs to reflect the felt experience of the environment as sensations and impressions that are capable of moving us to delight and awe. We need to conduct politics as if beauty matters. I mean, apart from that being beautiful itself and very articulate, mm. where has Oliver gone and can we get someone else to take up that cause in, uh, in the British Parliament? Well, it's a very good question. I mean, Oliver Letwin made that speech a long time ago now, more than 10 years ago, and uh, he really believed it, and I've talked to him about it many times, but he also said, you know, it's not a speech he would make again because people kind of said to him, what are you talking about? You know, we need to stick to the facts and stick to the, you know, main purposes of government, which is about the economy and about growth and about everything else, you know, so it really illustrated my point. What's very interesting now, though, is that I've been trying to persuade ministers to talk about beauty. I've actually had a couple come back to me and say, yeah, you've got a point. You know, we need to think about this. And in in fact, because it's the election coming up here, I'm actually writing and sending my book to a whole load of new ministers and saying, you know, if you're if you're in power after the election, please pick up this idea and make it real. Because it does seem to me that we're at a point in our history where we need to talk about the things that money can't buy, the things that really matter to us but can't be reduced to material values. And, you know, this is a moment where if we don't start doing that, you know, we will make decisions that will make us irrevocably the poorer in terms of our environmental and conservation well-being.
you talked about the um, the election coming up and, and I saw Theresa May's last PM question time mm. Uh, mm. where it was really strong and stable government and essential services that continually was raised by herself and also by the rest of um, the parliamentarians. This idea and framing of the discussion around beauty, does that get a lot of pushback because people might say, well, we're in a a moment of austerity, Um, we need to tighten our belts and that's just so, you know, middle class or you you have to be in a privileged position to care about beauty. Do you get that response and how do you combat it? Yes, we do get that response. I think one of the reasons politicians don't talk about beauty is they think it is a sort of middle-class preoccupation. And one of the reasons for writing my book was to, um, as you asked me, you know, to trace that historical story and show how there's been a powerful kind of democratic uh, story behind beauty um, going back hundreds of years and that, you know, all the ambitions of Wordsworth and uh, John Ruskin and Octavia Hill, you know, were not about beauty for the elite at all it was about beauty for everyone and everyone's right to beauty and so I've been trying to sort of in a way remind people of where the ideas about beauty came from and they aren't from a kind of current elite but I think you're also right that there's sort of this feeling well we'll we'll get beauty when the economy's sorted you know it's something we can't do it until we're in good shape economically and again I'm trying to use this period of debate to explain how actually that's that's wrong uh, it's the wrong way around we need beauty to shape the kind of future we have and you know if we think we can develop in future in the way we have in the past we can continue to undermine our natural resources and use three times the planet's natural resources that we should be using you know that the sort of pace and scale of development is not sustainable and beauty to me is one of the ways in which we can harness people's love of landscape and nature and our cultural heritage and help to kind of reorient our priorities and understand that, you know, in the future we may not be able to have more of everything, but we can have a better quality of life and we can enjoy these intangible elements and it's not just all about financial benefits and material growth. So I think we are at a bit of a turning point or potential turning point, but we do need to get the debate into this different frame because it's very much driven by the economy is the main thing we should focus on and everything else kind of can follow afterwards. You also write in your book that the EU and the European Commission have made great contributions in terms of um, Mm. raising the standards of conservation and environmental protection in Britain. What do you think will be the impact of leaving the EU and having to, I guess, reshape your legislation independently? Well, it's a very big question. And Actually, the truth is none of us knows at the moment. Um, We have no real idea about what the future will be. Many of us, I'm happy to say that I voted to remain because I believe that uh, we should be part of a a broader community to address things like climate change and the future of the planet, and it's impossible to do those things without collaboration. So to me, being part of Europe has been a benefit. And a lot of the legislation that we have in the UK originates from the European Union. Um, obviously, the commitment the government has made to transcribe it across is, you know, an important one, but we don't know whether it'll 
stand the test of time and whether it will be changed in the future. I think it's also true to say, though, and that my book charts this as well, that some of the problems have been caused by, for example, the common agricultural policy, which uh, has been very damaging to the environment. And this arguably moment of history gives us a chance to shape a new agricultural policy and to produce, produce something better. But only... If we take beauty seriously and take conservation and the protection of natural resources seriously, if we create a new agricultural policy that's focused around production and about making money from agriculture, then actually we won't get it right. So a lot of these policies have to be, if you like, cross-sectoral. They have to embrace a whole raft of objectives of which beauty and protection of nature um, are very much at the heart of them, in our view, if we're going to have a sustainable future. Well, it's interesting that you raise the need for it to be um, cross-sectoral as well. And also in your book, you say that it's an unlikely tension that arose between conservationists and farmers and that that's something that developed. And I guess now you're saying that that's still there. How do you bring together two groups that you would think have a lot in common and would both deeply appreciate the landscape and beauty? Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think it is a collaborative effort. Farmers created the landscape through literally generations, hundreds of years of farming and actually are needed to create a beautiful landscape for the future, but only if that is supported by public policy because agriculture is so incredibly uh, susceptible to influence from public policy. You know, it's, it's not a free market. There are very many constraints or, or, or frameworks that are provided. So I do think it's a moment of you know, the conservationists, the farmers and others working together to say what kind of agriculture do we want? How can we, how can we shape it in a sustainable way, but also a way that acknowledges the huge contribution that beautiful landscapes make, you know, to uh, this being a good place to live and, uh, and an extraordinarily important part of our conservation uh, record as well. And we're talking there about farming and agriculture. Let's look at another sector, uh, in particular property and the built environment. I know that beauty and aesthetics is certainly one of the key areas of dispute and tension that arise between those who seek to conserve the environment and those that seek to develop it. I mean, how do we manage these tensions that arise in the planning process? I think the most important thing, again, to say is that my argument, the argument in the book, is that we need to value um, the role of planning, not see it as a sort of obstacle to development and a, a nuisance that we have to put up with, but something that helps us shape a better future. And that that better future incorporates uh, these wider aspects of beauty and quality of life, as well as you know, the facilities we need and the business provision that we have to make, which of course we have to do. So really the moment I think is about saying what, you know, what actually as people do we value? You know, are we sort of all focused on the economy and that's all we care about? Or actually do we recognize that most of us are acutely responsive to our surroundings? We love beautiful places. We love the experiences we have, you know, with our family and our friends and our visiting, you know, and when we're talking or, or people taking a day out, you know, those things, those experiences are, are really meaningful to us. And can we shape a future for our country that uses tools like planning to get to a, a happy and harmonious outcome? Well, you also mentioned this idea of urban sprawl, which I find really interesting because there are some strategies that were put in place around, you know, ensuring that at least 50% of the new developments were actually 
placed on already developed land. What kind of practical tools have evolved in Britain in terms of policy developments to actually create a harmonious outcome for for property developers and for people who have an interest in that, but also for those who want to protect and conserve the landscape? Well, there are loads of tools if we choose to use them. Um, we have planning tools, we have conservation tools, we have the protection of special sites, we have bodies like the National Trust which own and look after beautiful places. We have a lot of legislation actually and a lot of practical techniques that we've learned over the years that do protect and, and look after beautiful uh, and important places. The, the issue I think I'm, I'm raising is, you know, Actually, you can have all that, but you can still have something like a new road scheme or a new development that just wipes it all away if it's the judgment that that's more important than the thing we're trying to protect. Um, and that's, that's the issue. That's why beauty needs to figure because, in a way, public policy makers need to know that they should treat it seriously as opposed to saying, well, and we know this is beautiful, but we really need those new houses, so terribly sorry that bit of landscape is going to be built over. So it's about priorities and about values as much as anything else. When I visited the UK, one of the key institutions, it seemed to me, was the National Trust. And you actually led that organisation for 11 years. So I'm really interested to hear your views in terms of what role you think the National Trust plays at the moment in terms of uh, the conservation of British uh, landscape and monuments and buildings, but also um, how important it is to broader British society. Well, the National Trust is one of the largest and most influential conservation organizations in the world. I mean, it's an incredible organization with a huge ownership of both natural and built landscapes and uh, historic properties, plus um, getting on for 5 million members, which is absolutely extraordinary. So the National Trust has a, a reach not only within the UK, but internationally. There are National Trusts all over the world, including in Australia, as I'm sure you know, yes. which are modeled, modeled on the National Trust of England, Wales and Northern Ireland. Ireland. So I think it's a phenomenal organization. I'm incredibly proud to have been its director general for, for so long. But I think it's not the only route. I mean, this is a, it's, it's an important part of the picture, but there are many, many other places that need looking after. There are many other voluntary and indeed statutory organizations that play a role. It's partly about having organizations, but as I keep coming back to, I think it's partly about the way we as a society value these ideas and this kind of sense of an indefinable but really important contribution to who we are and what kind of society we want in the future. And looking at these values that you do share, do you think that they have any elements that are British-centric or are they more universal? I personally don't think it's a uniquely British sense of beauty. I think everybody throughout the world and um, I, one thing I still do is I still chair the International National Trust organization. So I know the organizations that are modeled on the National Trust throughout the world. And everybody has, um, in every culture, a kind of sense of really loving, you know, the things that make up the, the, the character and the spirit of our country. I mean, in some cases, that's farmed landscapes, obviously, in some parts of the world, um, you know, other landscapes come in come into play. But there is a, I think this is something this is that the human spirit needs. I don't think it's just about one part of the world. But if we value these things, we have to fight for them. There is simply no 
sense that they will be automatically protected and, and don't need that constant vigilance of people who care and people who are prepared to put in the effort. So in many ways, my book is a celebration of the many, many people, often in a, a voluntary capacity, who have fought the fight for beauty over many years and will continue to do so. Yes, and I think what is excellent about your book is that although it highlights a context which is British, uh, it is very much applicable to everyone across the world in terms of the lessons learned and the appreciation that you have and share about beauty. So certainly that's something that I'm going to take away is the universality. And I hope that that's something that inspires the rest of us. Well, I hope so too. I mean, honestly, my um, the point of my book is to try and get beauty as a word just talked about more and used, um, you know, that people don't feel they have to sort of use a management-speaky word or to put, you know, financial values onto everything, that people feel confident in saying, no, this is beautiful and I love it and I'm, I'm prepared to stand up and fight for it. And I, I really hope it does inspire people to do that. I know it will. It already has um, inspired me. So I really appreciate um, that you've taken the time to research and write this book. We really do appreciate it and also appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. It's been lovely talking to you. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense. And I now have with me uh, via the phone, Dr. Maurice Helbert, who uh, she's actually a political scientist at the University of Melbourne. And she's very kindly joining us to give us her, um, I guess, take and and also um, her analysis on what has happened um, with this French presidential election. And uh, and particularly, I'm very pleased to have you, uh, Maurice, because uh, you are French yourself and French speaking, so uh, you have far more access to um, actual pro- French primary sources than we do. So uh, I'm hoping that you've managed to read Le Monde because I haven't. Hi there, Maurice. Yes, uh, uh, yes, I'm reading Le Monde every day because I subscribe to it. So, so yes, thank you for inviting me. No worries. Um, it was one of my... Um, nerdy moments when I went to France that I went to an actual news agent and bought uh, Le Monde but could not really read it um, but it was still very exciting <laughs> so <laughs> I'm very pleased to uh, speak with you about French politics and hopefully uh, you can share with us um, what's really been happening because uh, it's it's somewhat of a, a confusing process to those who aren't aware of it and um, in particular with these this presidential election um, we've had two rounds and first I'm just hoping that you could um, recap for us uh, for those of us who aren't quite aware of the French presidential election process how um, you know things went in the first round and who were the key candidates and and then we'll move into this um, second and final round. Yes, this is a really good question. So, um, yes, the electoral system in France, it's quite different from other systems abroad. And for every election, except for the European election, this is a two-round process. And it is believed that in the first round, you vote with your heart, and in the second round, you vote with your brain. And then you've got 14 days in between to deeply think about your, your vote and who you're going to vote for, uh, vote for and what is your best candidate, or, no, or maybe who you are not going to vote for. So 
in the first round of the election, there were, we could say, four candidates who appeared to be her head of, and around all of them, 20%. You had, first of all, Emmanuel Macron, which was at 24%. For him, it was a kind of an outstanding uh, victory, particularly because his movement did not exist a year ago. So within a year, he's been able to... Um, uh, gathered enough vote and convinced enough people to vote for him, which in itself is a quite outstanding achievement. But then you had also Marine Le Pen. She got 21% in the first round of the election. Um, she believed that she would do much better than this in the first round. She thought she would be around 30%. And uh, it was a bit, it was a victory because she qualified for the second round. But you could actually argue as well that it was a, a hollow victory just because it was not as much as she, she's want, she wanted to have. Then you have two other candidates. I'm just going to name them because I think in the future they're going to be quite important. You had uh, François Fillon, uh, a right-wing guy. Um, he was... Um, accused of a lot of corruption allegation all along the political campaign, which uh, pinned down uh, quite a lot his uh, ability to actually put forward forward this policy, but rather he was only uh, interviewed about those corruption allegation. And last but not the least, you had Monsieur Mélenchon, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. So Jean-Luc Mélenchon can be categorized as the same kind of movement and the movement you find in Spain, which is called Podemos. Uh, so it's a movement, a bit like Emmanuel Macron movement. Um, it it gathered a lot of kind of different uh, uh, trend of politics going from greens, communist, uh, any kind of left and other people who, who think um, uh, Emmanuel Mélenchon should be uh, their candidate. In the first round, um, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon did 19%, which is actually a very good score for him and especially because he's trying to, to get traction at this, at this kind of good uh, result he had in the first round in order to um, build a real opposition uh, prior to the next legislative election. And, I mean, Mélenchon uh, is a really interesting one because he's from the far left um, and it was also interesting to see that uh, the main traditional parties such as the socialists um, did not do very well at all and and the, and are not were not represented in this second round it really was um, the front national and uh, and macron's uh, En marche, and these are really just new, as you say. I mean, Front National is not so new, but uh, but it hasn't traditionally been one of the two final parties. How do you see? Um, what do you see as this development really reflecting within French society? Is it um, a, a disruption to the, the traditional way of doing politics and viewing politics? Um, I think it's a, it's a good point. Um, the two uh, main candidates that we can see now, Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen, build their whole political campaign on, on 
not being part of the system. And this is one of the, the main arguments which I think contributed to a qualified in the first round. So yes, these two candidates just build everything on not being from the system, being different, not being part of the political elites, although we can always argue that it's not really the case, but this is a way they kind of portray themselves during the whole political campaign. Absolutely. Well, we know that uh, Macron, uh, although he has never been elected um, before, he was an advisor to the current president, Francois Hollande, and later he was his Minister of Economy, Industry and Digital Affairs for two years. So he actually does have some political experience and Marine Le Pen has a uh, almost family tradition of of uh, being involved in the far right uh, in France. So, I mean, yeah, potentially that isn't really the case, but obviously um, there's some level of discontent within the current approach to politics in France. What do you think were some of the key issues that swayed voters um, to Macron's side as opposed to Marine Le Pen's? This is actually a really good question because I do believe that actually uh, Marine Le Pen has a bit missed on the kind of international and internal national context which would have favoured her to win the election. She hasn't been able to impose her issues during the political campaign and her issues were the Europe, uh, the European Union, immigration, poverty and unemployment. Rather than this, this is much more corruption allegation, which was the main topic of the first part of the presidential election. Um, Additionally, I would say the reason the reason Marine Le Pen lost, and this is something we should not forget, it's because her own party is a main liability. I mean by that way that actually while she Marine Le Pen has been working for the last ten years in sweeping under the carpet the kind of dark side of the national front, um the second, uh, the dark side of the national phone com- comes up all the time. Um, for instance, uh, she stepped down her head of the national front and was rest- uh, was replaced by a guy no- named Jean-François Gelk. And the, sec- the second he was named as head of the national front, a video uh, emerged on YouTube show- showing that he was denying the Holocaust. I'm just explaining, I'm just providing this example to show that actually it is very difficult for Marine Le Pen to hide the kind of, the kind of nasty side of her own national front. And this is one of the reasons that she lost, and because people do not want to vote for her. Yes, and didn't she somewhat seek to distance herself from her own party during the campaign? Yes, yeah, she, 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 she tried to, but she, she was not successful at, uh, at all. I, I, I think she was actually, the second part of her campaign was actually a kind of a failure. The strategy she used, the kind of aggressive strategy she used, uh, didn't work for her. People were waiting for her to uh, do some proposition, to put forward a political agenda. In, instead, she went on all attacking Emmanuel Macron and kind of using the kind of Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump uh, style. 
style and strategy of campaign and it didn't work that well for her. Yes, and in the final debate between Macron and Le Pen, um, that that certainly came across that she was um, really just attacking his character and his policy platforms, but providing not very much detail and often confusing uh, policy positions of her own. I mean, that that strategy has worked in other countries, but clearly it hasn't worked here. And Macron, um, you know, provided a very optimistic take on France's future and uh, even with his movement it's en marche which is all about looking forward and France moving France moving forward um, he's now naming his movement la république en marche which is really you know now that he uh, will become president he needs to solidify his um, his power base which at the moment is very minimal in terms of um, in the national assembly um, I'm really interested to hear first of all, um, just how decisive his victory was in this presidential election and whether that will impact in a positive way um, the forthcoming elections? Yes, this is a really good question because so it seems that 65% is a, it's a kind of an outstanding uh, result for him and it is in some ways, let's be very clear. clear. But that said, uh, there was a lot of people who didn't turn up to vote and a lot of people who, uh, so there, was, there were a lot of people who abstained and a lot of other people who voted blank, almost uh, 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 a quarter of all the voters actually didn't turn up, or either didn't turn up or voted blank. So it's going to be for him a very difficult exercise. And as you point out, his next step for him is going to have to be able to have a clear majority at um, at the parliament. And right now, if we look at it, it he does not have his movement does not have any kind of MPs. So within a month, he has to come up with enough candidates to put for, to, to put forward in order for them to be elected and in order for him to get a majority at the parliament. And this is going to be a huge task, a huge task. And I think it is much more likely that he's going to have to deal with the kind of traditional parties, MPs that there is there's going to be, there is already in place or, and are most likely to be voted in again. And so it means that um, as soon as he has to negotiate with those different parties, he's going to have to water down about a bit his policies and, and hence change a, a little bit his agenda. Absolutely, and that may not be popular because he has some pretty um, clear and strong policy positions. Um, but before we go to those, because I'm really interested in a few of them, um, we he's actually said that he's seeking uh, 50-50 male and female candidates and also that 50% of those not be um, from politics so that they come from another sector and, and from, um, you know, have a, a better or more diverse life experience. I mean, if you, if you are seeking such a, you know, perhaps inexperienced group, um, this may be difficult to, to grasp enough seats to be able to have a working majority, as you say, and therefore he'll need to um, build some form of a coalition um, or at least to have good working relationships with um, those parties closest to him. How likely do you think it is now that um, there's this kind of fragmentation within um, the the 
movements that have arisen. Uh, you know, ha- if he d- can't gather enough support of his own, um, you know, within his own movement and own party, then, you know, who do you think are the likely um, allies that he might rely on? So the likely allies he must rely on, it's, it's a very good question, is going to be the party, uh, the socialist members and the Republican members and especially the centre-right Republican members. He's going to be able to find some sort of majority around that. And um, although it's, it's true that in Australia we are very used to the two-party system, we can also look at Nordic countries where, where they have a much more... Uh, um, diverse system with multiple parties usually governing all together. So it's possible to govern even within a a very diverse um, uh, assembly. I've got no doubt about that. Um, That said, said, as we said again together a few seconds ago, because he's going to have to make some kind of alliances, he's going to have to then negotiate on his own policy and then water them down. Yes, and I'm particularly interested in some of his um, economic and labour reforms. Um, I know that uh, in France, the 35-hour work week is something that is, you know, has been around for quite a while. And, um, you know, the system of employment and holidays and rights of workers are also very important to the French. What um, are his proposals around um, the working week and, and making, um, I guess, that France more business friendly and in and in turn potentially um, I guess bringing back some of the the rights or um, I guess uh, benefits that workers currently have yes so definitely he's got a plan for workers which uh, uh, workers are not going to maybe enjoy that well and uh, especially because he's got a kind of um, newly ruled set of, uh, of policies um, on the for the little story, it's true that actually we still emphasize on the 35 hours, but the 35 hours uh, contract does not exist since quite a while. They are still there in the law, but uh, the law has been actually kind of uh, uh, watered down in such a way that actually flexibility has come back for quite a while now. And uh, it, it's still we're still talking about it, but it doesn't it really exist as such, I would say, just just to be precise on this particular point. Mm, so kind of like our eight-hour working days, which don't really exist anymore. Well, exactly, this is exactly the average working hours in France is 41, something like that. So obviously the 35 hours are not there, I would say. Yeah, but, an um, ideal. But yeah, exactly. Um, but on, on other issues uh, such as uh, workers' flexibility, uh, social services, and unemployment, unemployment benefits, he, he really wants to actually make work, um, if I may say that like that, a bit less secure and actually make workers much more flexible, copying a little bit the kind of German system of uh, flexibility which was, impo- which was imposed and implemented something like 10 years years ago. So this is a kind of style of policy he wants to have. Indeed. And 
I mean, you mentioned there Germany. Um, Macron has uh, somewhat sided with German Chancellor Angela Merkel uh, when it comes to refugees and immigrations. Um, immigration saying that, quote, confusing terrorists with asylum seekers, refugees and migrants is a profound moral, historical and political error. I mean, do you think that uh, that, that is something that the majority of um, French really can get behind because I know that, that it was a hot topic in, and it was one of the key platforms that Marine Le Pen uh, was running on. Well, and, and this, is very, this is very interesting because although, and I agree with you, immigration could have been the kind of traction, political traction that Marine Le Pen could have uh, served on during a political campaign, she has not been able to, to uh, impose this issue. Uh, rather, rather, I would say the conversation during the whole campaign was rather about unemployment, the economy, um, and Europe. That, that was the, the, the three big uh, uh, topic apart from corruption allegation, of course. But um, talking about the alliance between Marco, Macron and Merkel, well, of course, the alliance is going to work really well, especially because Macron doesn't want to exit the European Union. So for Germany, it is a very good, uh, very good news to have Macron in power. But more than this, I think for all the European Union, the fact that this is Macron who has who's been voted in is a very good news, particularly because the European Union is showing a really strong unity uh, in negotiating uh, the Brexit with uh, Great Britain. So the Macron election is going to, I would say, reinforce this unity in negotiating the Brexit with Great Britain. Yeah, absolutely. And that's point as well, while the French people uh, uh, are not very happy with the European Union, uh, something like three, three quarter of the French people wants to keep being into, into the European Union. What they want is to have some change, but they don't really, they don't really overwhelmingly want to leave it. Yes, and I mean, what is Macron going to do? Because, I mean, has he proposed reforms to um, the, the EU and France's relationship with it? Yes, in the last day of the political campaign, he kind of uh, of opened uh, uh, the door for negotiation, and I think it was to um, uh, attract more voters by uh, saying, yes, I understand, we are not all very happy about the European Union, so then I'm going to ask that some reform are being made in order for the European to be more in our favour than it is right now. So, that's, yes, it has opened... He's open, obviously, to some kind of negotiation to transform uh, the European Union. Indeed, uh, I'm sure there's always room for improvement. Um, oh, and yes. <laughs> indeed, and similarly, <laughs> globalisation and how that's working for France. Um, but uh, I know that uh, Prime Minister, the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, has come out and said that uh, this decisive victory for Macron really emphasises the need for a decisive victory for Britain. Uh, obviously, she'd hope that's in her favour. And you mentioned there the Brexit negotiations. I mean, this, this kind of um, French move towards um, unity and, and ongoing integration um, clearly does strengthen the hand of the EU in negotiation deals. How important do you think it is that, um, that really 
Europe remains united and that these ongoing issues um, around uh, loaning money and owing money, such as um, as Greece and its uh, deficit, I mean, how, how much of a, a discord does that create within the relationship, do you think? Well, for, for, for Emmanuel Macron, and I think for everybody, it is every member and government of the European Union, it is very important that they are unified if any of them wants the European Union to, to keep being and to keep going on. Of course, it's not perfect. Everybody admits that. But um, for trade, for uh, economic cooperation, for peace, if I can, if I can actually even use that word, the European Union is is a fantastic tool. Where I would like to, uh, where I would like to add to that as well. It's like, well, the different government in Europe tra- tend to use uh, the European Union as a kind of punching ball when uh, they tend to blame the European Union for what's not going well. Why? This is all the governments and the members of the different governments who, who are decided, deciding about what's going on in the European Union. So in some ways, if we don't like the European Union, it's because our different governments are made it like that. So it means as well that we can change it at any time. We've been able to make it like that. We can change it at any time. It's a democratic process after all. Yes, you raise a very good point there. <laughs> and um, just finally on, on Emmanuel Macron, the man, um, he's the youngest leader of France since Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, what do you think his leadership style will be? And presumably it will be a little bit different to Napoleon's. Well, let's hope it's going to be different <laughs> from Napoleon. Otherwise, I think our neighbours are not going to appreciate it. Indeed. So much. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, I, I, I think he's going to be quite, uh, quite authoritarian because I think he, he knows exactly what he wants. And I'm not, I'm not using this word in a kind of negative way, but in a really positive way that he's actually knows what he wants and he's going to try to push forward his own political agenda in that way. But if I can say something, if you look at what's happening right now in France since he's been voted in, there is two parties, Marine Le Pen's party and Jean-Luc Mélenchon's party, who are trying to impose themselves as being the main opposition for the following five years. And this is something that actually everybody is going to have to look at because there's going to be a lot of resistance and and protest in France. And it has already started uh, against the kind of policy that Emmanuel Macron wants to put forward. For example, there were already a protest yesterday, not a big one, but in Paris uh, against uh, Ma- Emmanuel Macron presidency. Um, the protesters were particularly, say, particularly, particularly saying to Emmanuel Macron, okay, we voted for you. But the reason we voted for you is because we did not want to vote for Marine Le Pen. It does not mean that we're, going, we're giving you a blank check. You're going to have to pay attention to us. And I find that actually quite interesting. Very interesting. And, I mean, uh, the French don't, certainly don't shy away from protests and um, very healthily like to protest. So it'll be very interesting to see how they voice their opinions when he actually starts trying to implement some of his policies. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Maurice, uh, for joining us. It's just absolutely fascinating and um, you've given us such an amazing insight into the, uh, the French presidential elections and France itself. It was a pleasure talking to you. 
And you are listening to 3 FM. The show is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And I'm very pleased to uh, to have with me in the studio actor Naomi Rukavina. And on the phone we have Matthew Lutton, who is the artistic director of the Malthouse Theatre as well as its co-CEO and the director of this play. Thank you, um, Matthew and Naomi, for joining us. Thanks for oh. having us. Um, it's a pleasure to have you, and uh, and also t- it's a pleasure to watch this play. Um, I saw it on opening night, and I mean there are a lot of laugh out loud moments um, in the play, which you kind of when you read the synopsis um, don't necessarily expect. But it has that great um, classic Australian humour in it. So Matthew, first of all, um, with you as your role as director of this play, and and, um, you know, your understanding of, of A Way by Michael Gow. What uh, really drew you to this particular script and play? Because it is a classic and it's somewhat, something that uh, people would be quite familiar with if they've, if they've studied it in high school. And I'm wondering, um, you know, what kind of interpretation you've brought to this play um, that, that is different or new? Um, oh, I think one of the things you've already spoken about, how there's a great humour in the play, uh, is sort of one of the reasons, um, it's a classic and one of the reasons that I certainly was drawn to it, because I think you laugh at these people on stage uh, because they're so familiar. It's the laugh of mm. recognition that you see them and they're your parents, they're your family, yeah. they're your brothers and sisters. Um but uh, when uh, I started on this project, what interested me was to make a work that started with that familiarity but then went into much darker territory. So um, Michael Gow has written a summer play in many ways. Um, it's sort of got this very Australian Christmas summer over the top of it. But it's also a very dark play. It's a very angry play about families that are sort of tearing themselves apart and families dealing with loss and struggling to articulate what it means in Australia to deal with big ideas when we don't have very many rituals of how to deal with them. So I guess we wanted to bring out the the darkness in the summer. Um, And also, I think a lot of people remember the play as being very domestic. I think a lot of people that maybe studied it remember particular parts um, and how it's sort of a play of uh, families in houses in the 1960s when... I actually always thought this was a big, epic sort of Shakespearean drama, and so we wanted to create a version that really brought those big, epic elemental forces to the fore. Absolutely, and I think one of the ways that it does that is through the set and the props because it really is very much stripped back um, to the absolute essentials and although the time period is still prominent and, you know, it, it is set in um, in the ni- late 1960s and obviously mm. the costumes are very um, clearly say that and there's some amazing leather sandals that the men <laughs> sport, <laughs> which I think should be brought back. I don't know why they ever left. That's right. There's a return coming on. Don't worry. Good. Yeah. So everyone, check out the fashion in this play, but also, um, you know, this the the set is really amazingly um, stripped back to its essentials, and it's just so effective in the sense that it doesn't get in the way, and it doesn't feel confined like uh, like a domestic play could be if um, if you know that those really. St- typical sets and, you know, really realistic um, depictions mm. were, were up there. I mean, what 
kind of production values did you want to bring to this play? Well, that, so what you're saying is so true. Like what I think can happen is uh, some of the classic Australian plays and classics in general can get uh, a generalised wash of nostalgia put over them. Um, and one of the things we wanted to do was make the play feel far more contemporary and immediate by putting that nostalgia in, um, in the background or minimising that nostalgia. So, like you say, the we it's the staging is very minimal, um, so that you're not reminded of that uh, period visually constantly. Uh, the costumes are from the period, but the characters absolutely operate in the world of the 60s, but their emotional qualities, the way they um, navigate the family relationships are completely contemporary. And the sort of, uh, I guess, the, the, the sins that they're coming up against, the sort of sense of class conflict, the xenophobia, um, the sort of darkness that they're wrestling with in Australia, it's still a darkness that's very present today. So um, it's sort of, it's bringing... In many ways, it's finding a way to stage it in a minimal and epic way that allows us to see the contemporary uh, resonances as opposed to get caught up in the pleasures of a nostalgic sort of 1960s world. Indeed. Yeah, that's very well put and it's certainly achieved. And it reminded me um, of Gwen, uh, which is Naomi's mum in the play. Naomi plays Meg. And uh, and Gwen, I mean, her responses on Christmas morning in terms of... <laughs> that was probably the funniest scene I've seen is, you know, the, the unwrapping of the presents and the... I mean, I won't spoil it for anyone, but it, it just really was so typically Australian and it actually <laughs> felt like my Christmases. <laughs> no offence to my parents, but, you know, there's always that tension and elation at, in, at Christmas and certainly um, in, in Gwen's household, the tension is there, very front and centre. It's there. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Naomi, I'll bring you, bring you in on that. Hello. Uh, hi. So, Naomi, I mean, your uh, character Meg is um, how old and you know wh- where is she at in her life and and I guess in her family dynamics? Sure. Uh, Meg is 16 or 17. She is coming up to her final year of high school and she is in that liminal state between not no longer being a child and not quite being an adult and she's certainly forming her own ideas and moral values and what she finds important and not um, and they don't necessarily align with certainly her mum certainly Gwen or even her dad who she does who she's probably closer with in in the show but so she's in that space of negotiating being an adult but not yet being in in her own kind of sphere of operation. Um, yes, coming of age very much. Yeah. It's a, one of, a fraught time, as I'm sure people who have had grown teens can attest to. Absolutely. And, I mean, the younger uh, characters in this play, yourself and um, Tom, yeah. you know, they are really what I feel is the glue that, holds this play together in the sense that they're the thread that's constantly throughout the play and they, I mean, Tom's experience, um, you know, as a, a young boy slash man who um, also I don't want to spoil it, is having a certain life 
changing yeah. event that yeah. he's going through. And, I mean, he's constantly there present on the stage, which yeah. I find such a effective way of, um, you know, reminding us of the presence of the younger people and the future generation in all of these conflicts and tensions that the adults are having yeah. in their relationships. I mean, in your um, scenes between each other because you do have some level of flirtation and yeah, love yeah. interest. I mean, what do you think um, this play brings out in your character and Tom's character and what um, young people in the late 60s were feeling? Oh, gosh, I don't know about the late 60s because I wasn't there, but... In this play? In, in our play, sure. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I think it's that thing that Matt said before that Perhaps the reason that this play is so loved and is such a classic, an Aussie classic, is because you can you, you can really empathise. You've been there. They are your sister and brother. They're your parents. They're you when you were younger. And you're like, oh, God, I remember that. I remember, you know, <laughs> flirting with that guy at school or I remember my first love or I remember that fight and, and those family dynamics. So, you know, I really think that maybe those dynamics that are in our play in the 60s are still the dynamics that happen today. And that's the thing that... Um, um, has really given away the, you know, the the ability to stand the test of time, and and it's made it thirty years, and has been put on over and over again. And I know that uh, my scenes with Liam Noonan, who plays Tom, um, Matt never lets us get away. And I think his version of contemporising our show is he never lets us get away with kind of young acting. You know, he's being like a bit cutesy and a bit giggly. And of course, it's the first place you want to go mm. when you kind of think, oh, young kids in love, you go super giggly. And he's like, none of that. You don't need to play young. You just, we say you are, so you are. And you just, you be a human in, in a state. And you're like, well, of course. And so um, that's how, <clears throat> that's what, uh, Liam and I always strive for, which is not always the place you want to go. <laughs> exactly. You know, Matt doesn't yeah. let us get away with much. So <laughs> it's really, <laughs> it's great that that's what he's put upon us to, to the truth of the truth of every scene, sort of yeah. the truth of being in love, the truth of going through uh, a hardship, the truth of, you know, Tom's character's um, life ordeal that he's going through, the, tr the, the truth of Meg, what she's going through in uh, on the cusp of adulthood. Um, and I think that's that's what the whole play is about and what makes it really relatable. Mm, mm. And Matt, um, it sounds like you um, <laughs> have, your direction is excellent um, in terms of drawing out the universal themes and keeping the actors on task. Um, <laughs> in terms of your, your direction and your approach to these really, um, you know, common themes and the themes that you've already referenced around racism and class that are still here and very much, although they may have changed in terms of um, the race that uh, that is involved, you know, in this play yeah. it's around um, British immigrants and UK migrants who have come across to Australia and are the others who, you know, just don't fit in, um, which is really kind of weird now for us to think that, that that was the case, but now we have, you know, others coming um, and, and it's, we created another other. Uh, in terms of your picking up on these these class differences and also um, the racial tensions that exist in this in this play and still in society, I mean, what was your hope um, in terms of making these, you know, highlighting them, but also were you seeking not to overplay them because it's a delicate tension and balance, isn't it? It, it is. You don't want to... Um 
yeah, you don't want to over-egg those things in the sense of, like, there's a scene that I really love in the piece where suddenly at this campsite where you've talked about the presence being unwrapped, these other three campers suddenly appear. And they're the sort of, um, they're trying to enlist the other characters in a sort of, quite a sort of anti-environmentalist uh, exclusionary policy. Um, and very early on we said uh, we didn't want to, we wanted to try and understand that there was a, there's a sort of menace perhaps in the in, underneath this in tone, but also not to turn them into villains. Mm. I think it's too easy to sort of, um, uh, when you see the racism or the classism emerge in the play, to suddenly um, uh, make that sort of, uh, highlight that as deeply problematic as before. I think it's more unsettling if it's sort of um, wrapped up in a smile. You know, yeah. that if it's somehow yeah. offered in a way that um, you you double take or you don't quite hear it um, or you think you misheard it. I think it's more genuine when you realise actually these ideas infiltrate Australia. Often uh, it's not always, there's, you know, there's infiltrations that are very loud in the country and very outspoken and very aggressive and then there's more infiltrations that are insidious, un often visible or quietly spoken. Um, and it's trying to capture both. Um, and a lot of that's about how to uh, manage the performances. I mean, a lot of we spend hours and hours and hours of rehearsal trying to um, make sure that you don't just... Um, that, there's a, there's, that there's a quality underneath the text to realise that Michael's always writing two things at once. That's yeah. sort of what's being said and what's actually being thought. Mm, which is often the best writing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I, I noticed that um, these the actors in the cast are very um, interesting and diverse in terms of their careers and experiences as actors in the types of plays and also other shows that they've been involved in. And as a director, I'm interested to hear how um, you work with the actors when they, they're coming from a range of different points. And I'm sure this happens very often. Um, and they come from different training backgrounds as well. What's your approach to, you know, looking at a text and starting to understand it and work with actors on it? Um, I, look, I think it's it's a really they're a really extraordinary ensemble that um, they bring enormous amounts of energy to it, and there's lots of different like nearly every actor in that rehearsal room has a different process and different ways of working and excavating the, the play and the text. Just to make I it easy for you, Matt. <laughs> that's right. I like that. <laughs> Bunch of cats don't need to wrangle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in the best possible way. Um, but it's, I think it's about um, uh, constantly drilling down into... Um, well, for us in this play, it was constantly drilling down to what are people actually arguing about. Um, that I think we, in this play, uh, the sort of way all the actors got on board, I think, was going, we're not just going to play the pleasantries that sit on top. It can sound like it can bubble along a sort of Australian colloquialism. Mm. And you sort of go, that sounds like... Uh, the Australian families we've heard or conversations we've heard before, but we were constantly talking about what else is actually happening behind that, what is actually the mask. Everyone is, there's a lot of lying in the show. Yeah. People yeah. are constantly lying to each other endlessly. So I think we all, I think the whole cast sort of started to consciously or not try and investigate where those lies are. And I think we sort of unified the cast by all, you know, heading in the same direction, trying to find the 
the dark around the belly and then the um the mask that's put up. I mm. thought you were gonna say the whole car started lying to each other. <laughs> 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 Well, it's like it's acting is lying. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly is. Um, but, and also some of the lies are, you know, they're, they're told for good reason or at least the characters really think yeah. that they're doing the right thing when they're lying as well. So yeah. there's that added complexity. Um, it's just, it's not cut and dry. There are no villains, although no. I'm sure that some people could single out those <laughs> who, <laughs> who are a little bit... Um, stronger in their characters than the others but there's just I mean there really is a character for every um Australian family I think um (laughs) in this mix of three families um and Naomi just um bringing it back to um the cast and your I guess experience in this play you've already performed it at the Sydney Opera House um, and it is a, a joint production between the STC, the Sydney Theatre Company and Malthouse yeah. um, and Matthew heading that up at, from the Malthouse. I mean, clearly there are also actors from Sydney in this play. There's cl- obviously, you're not from different planets coming from Sydney and Melbourne, but, I mean, what's been the experience, you know, pl- playing this show in different regions and moving it around from mm-hmm. Sydney to Melbourne. Has there been, I mean, you've now done uh, how many shows in Melbourne? Uh, we've, we opened last Thursday with a preview on the Wednesday and we played yeah. until uh, Saturday. So not that many yet. Yeah. Uh, but we'd already, we've, we did already 50 odd shows in Sydney. Mm. So it was fairly well worn in. I mean, there is a difference between Sydney and Melbourne yeah. audience wise anyway. Mm. Um, you know, Sydney is, I mean, it's in the opera house, so you've already kind of, you're um, appealing to people who are maybe a large tourist base or who want to see a show at the opera house who aren't necessarily theatre goers um, or who wouldn't necessarily go and see a play otherwise, uh, which is fantastic, you know. It's, yeah. it's always great when you have an audience that would not necessarily come. Um, so there's that side of things. I mean, there's also huge huge following of course with STC's um, uh, all of their subscribers and their usual um, patrons so that's good too but Melbourne I mean Melbourne is the home of the arts in Australia so of course we have a very large uh, theatre base here so you you do have all of our usual suspects who do come and see theatre shows and then there's always um, friends and family who always want to come and then I mean that's great as well when you have Mm. sort of friends and family who necessarily wouldn't see theatre then come and see it because you're in a show yeah. and that's really great. I had some uh, some really great friends of mine who are from overseas and um, <laughs> they said at the end, that red-headed woman, referring to Gwen, yes, who plays mother. Meg's mum, yep. never bring her to my house. <laughs> <laughs> She's not allowed. Um so, you know, that was really, it was actually very sweet that yeah. they, you know, they could really see something in there. Can I just say that Heather Mitchell, who plays Gwen, is the complete antithesis of Gwen. She is the most <laughs> warm and loving and fabulous woman you could ever meet. Um, so she's a very good actor because, yeah. you know, she does it so very well. But our whole cast is incredible. Oh, half yeah, from Sydney, phenomenal. half from Melbourne. And you're right, have had mm. very varied careers. I mean, I feel very blessed as one of the younger um, cast members to be working with um, some of the theatre greats, acting greats of, mm. in, in Australia at the moment. Um, it's really exciting and it has been such a fantastic ensemble. Like Matt said, he, yeah. he's not being polite as being one of the cast members. It's, 
you know, after doing sort of 60 shows with the same people, um, not being sick of it and not yeah. being sick of them, is it's, it's a thing because <laughs> you spend all of our time together, like it's all like of it. It's like a family. It is. And I, um, I said the other night at a, at a benefit um, that I gave a speech at that these guys are my family, they're, you know, they're my new family and you feel like that. You have, yeah. you'll have a little tiff and you'll make up and you do everything together and you eat and you sleep mm. and you travel and, and you give presents and you have birthdays <laughs> and it's, it's actually been really, really wonderful uh, yeah. from the inside. Oh, well, that's lovely to hear. And um, and as we reference the Malthouse Theatre, it is a wonderful theatre to witness it in. Um, it, it seems perfect. It was almost felt like it was made for this play. Um, and and I note here that you will be family for quite a while longer. Yes. The, the play runs till the 28th of May. So there is definitely a lot of time for people to jump in yeah. and see this play. Um, so... I really just want to thank you, Matthew and Naomi, for sharing um, with us your experiences on this play and for creating such a, a delightful and really thought-provoking experience. No, not at all. Thank you very much. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3 R. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the Triple R website. Hope to see you again next time.